We're going to open our Bibles now. We're um, looking at Judges chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 5. Um, it's quite a long book. We're going to be taking fairly big chunks over the new, uh, next few weeks. So please grab your Bible, open it up, uh, and Ellie is going to be reading those verses for us this morning. Julian suggested I listen to this on my um, app on my phone. I was very tempted to actually bring it forward and play it for you. Judges, chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked asked the Lord, "Who who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I will give him the land into their give the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simonites, their brothers, "Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours." So the Simonites went with them. When Judah attacked the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Parasites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and, found, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Parasites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it and they put the city city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites, Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Abba, and defeated Shashai, Ahemen, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Deber, formerly called Kiriath Sepha. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sepha. Nathaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Nathaniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favour, since you have given me the land in the Negev. Give me also the springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' family, father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Sephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hormah. And the men took also Gaza, Ashkelon and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. 
The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jezebites who were living in Jerusalem and to this day the Jezebites live there with the Benjaminites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel and the Lord was with them and they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. Then he went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bashan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblium, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahal and remained among them, but did not subject, but they did subject them to forced labour. Nor did Asher drive out those living in the land of Acre or Sidon or Ahalap or Aksib or Hilba or Apak or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher living among the Canaanites inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth. Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanites, inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labourers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold on to Mount Heris, Ajalon and Thalbin. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labour. The boundary of the Amorites were from Scorpion, passed to Selah and beyond. And the angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have, not dis- you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you, I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things, all the Israelites, the peoples, wept aloud, and they called the place Bochum, and there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Thanks, Ellie. Nicely navigated. There's some tough ones in there. You've done well. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. I'm not going to read all of these verses back as we work our way through them. We're just going to cover a lot of them in passing because there's just so many details there. Uh, And so if you've got it in front of you, you'll be able to follow along uh, and see what it is I'm referring to. Uh, The other day I was glancing over my Instagram profile, as you do. Um, I think we were looking for photos to print or something like that. 
just in case you're not aware, uh, or in case you don't have Instagram, it's a place where you can post photos, share them with your friends, etc., uh, etc. Et anyway, I was looking at mine, and I was thinking as I looked over, I thought, I have an interesting life. It's actually quite a, a good-looking life. There's pictures of bikes, there's beaches, um, there, there's home brewing, there's boating, there's lots of good coffee, there's really beautiful places, uh, there's, there's all these picture-perfect family adventures. It's, you know, it's actually quite an interesting-looking life. Um, maybe, maybe my life is a long, uh, entertaining adventure. Or maybe it's not. Oh, you might not think that. I, I don't know. Uh, but that's, that's what our Instagram profiles look like, isn't it? That, that's the sort of things we, we show there. We don't show the fact that I eat the same cheese sandwich for lunch every day. That would be boring. Uh, you don't get photos of my face in the morning after having a short and interrupted sleep. Uh, I've never posted a video of me losing my temper at the kids. There are many opportunities to do that, but I haven't done it yet. Uh, you haven't seen any photos of my messy desk uh, and the utter chaos that seems to reign there every day. We, we, we don't do that, do we? We don't share those sorts of things. If we're recording our lives, it's not the sort of thing we're, that we record, which is why the start of Judges is so strange. It, it's not a positive chapter, is it? Uh, this, this record of Israel's history and settlement of the land, it's no Instagram profile, it's no highlights reel. It's actually, as, as Katie pointed out, a, a litany of failure, isn't it? And it's quite interesting. If you're familiar with this part of the Bible, if you've read some of the books around Judges, you might remember that Joshua, the book directly before Judges, it actually records a lot of these same events. But it does so in a really positive light. It shows them in really uh, good ways. But Judges, Judges takes exactly the same events and it arranges them differently in a very negative way. It's got a very hard truth for God's people. Uh, we have a tendency, we often paint judges as, you know, that book of heroes. A few of the guys make it into, you know, your kid's storybook Bible. There's some great, interesting characters in there. But, but we skip out the sordid details, of which there are a lot. Uh, we, don't, we don't focus on that. But that's not actually the book at all. It's not a, a book of heroes designed to entertain us or give us good moral figures to look up to and ignore the bad parts of. Actually, what judges is, is a book of failure. Uh, It's a book that charts the moral degeneration and utter disintegration of God's people. It's a book that shows us their increasing shortcomings as they try to live as God's people without God. And it shows us how badly that works out. So why? Why have this dismal book? Why study this dismal book? Well, because in our failings we actually learn a lot. We learn a lot of things about ourselves but more importantly and particularly in this book we learn a lot of things about God and that's why it matters so much for us and that's why over the next months we're going to be opening this book up. But let's jump into its introduction. Uh, as you'd be aware Judges doesn't just occur in a vacuum. There's, there's a whole lot of things that have come before this that, that really inform what's going on. There's a whole history of promises that, that lead up to this point in the Bible and we, we see them starting to be fulfilled. We, we rewind all the way back to Abraham about 430 years before the book of Judges and we see God actually came and said, this land that you're living in now as a stranger, it's going to be yours, not yours personally, it's going to belong to your children and to the people that descend from you and it's great, that, that's a wonderful promise, it's a beautiful land. 
The promise gets interrupted. God's people end up in Egypt. They're enslaved. They're trapped there and things seem very dark. But now in in these incredible displays of power, God has lifted his people up out of Egypt. He's rescued them from there and then he's shepherded them, this whole nation, through the desert. We open with those verses from Exodus, uh, getting that snapshot of God and, and the people at Mount Sinai and seeing God covenanting himself to his people, that is, promising himself to them and saying, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be a special people like no one else. You're precious, you're unique, you're mine. Uh, As you may be aware, things didn't go really that smoothly after that. The generation forgot him, they wandered in the land, but eventually God brought them to it. And in Joshua, we see them arriving in the land and, and things go really well. They, they enter the land, they win all these amazing battles and clearly God is with them. And now when we get to the book of Judges, it's time to finish the job. The resistance has been broken, it's time to mop up and occupy the land. And so we arrive in verse 1. Let me just read the first five verses. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. It sounds great, doesn't it? And it is great. Yes, okay, Joshua, their heroic leader, he's he's dead, he's off the scene now. But things are still going well. The, the, The people still go to God, they still ask for his help, ask for his guidance, and he gives it to them and he confirms it by winning their battles for them. These enormous battles are won and it looks good. But then we're going to get a note that doesn't fit with the rest of this story, does it? Look at verse 6 and 7. Adonai Bezek fled... But they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. All of a sudden we have this kind of difference, don't we? There's this focus on this note of really cruelty, isn't it? Harsh cruelty. And it's something that God's never called for. Yes, God had said, go into the land, uh, attack, defeat the people there, but he has never called for cruelty. And we say, well, maybe it's justifiable. I mean, clearly this guy was a bad guy. Bad news, you know, he boasts, 70 kings uh, I've done the same to, and they they just pick their, their scraps from under my table. And yes, he is bad news, but this is still not God's way. This is the Canaanite way of doing things. And now God's people are doing it. Strangely though, Adonai Bezek is right. Uh, He's right in what he says. It's quite a remarkable thing to have this this pagan king uh, confessing things that are true. Uh, He he identifies God is just in doing this to him. Uh, He's done that to so many other people, therefore it's right to have it done to him. He's correct. And strangely enough, he's surprisingly accepting, isn't he? His land has just been invaded, his city has been defeated, he's been mutilated... And he's just like, yep, this is the way. He doesn't seem to mind. 
He's surprisingly accepting. We're probably surprised that stuff like this is in the Bible. That's strange, isn't it? How brutal is this? Not only this event, but really the whole pattern of things that we're, we're seeing here. We're seeing the conquest of the land, which means obviously the killing of soldiers, but we also see the slaughter of civilians. Entire cities wiped out, put to the sword. We have a name for that, don't we? We call that genocide. We call that war crimes. How does this make it into the Bible? How does God not only allow it, how does God actually justify it and command it? How do we reconcile that? It's worth getting our minds around because it's something we're going to tackle again and again in the book of Judges. First of all, it's worth getting some context. Let me just read from Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is something we find in Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. This is what God says. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations... The Lord your God will drive them out before you. Let's let's just establish this broader picture here. God's saying to the people, you're not so good that you're allowed to do this. He's not saying, you know, you're morally qualified, you're a relatively good people, therefore you can go and judge these bad people and, you know, wipe them out, do as you see fit. That's not it at all. God actually says to Israel, you guys are terrible. You guys are awful, you know, better than anyone else, but you're mine. And I'm going to use you to do my will through you. I'm going to exercise judgment through you. Uh, we, we, you know, we have that saying, God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. That's what he's doing with Israel. He's doing the right thing. He's doing a, a, a true thing using them. We read elsewhere that God has judged the sins of the Canaanites to have reached their full. And so he has decided to bring his justice and his judgment against them. It's God enacting this. And God is perfectly qualified to do this because God is perfectly holy, perfectly all-knowing and right. So he can make this call, he can carry it out and he can use his people to do it. But we also have to just remember that this is not a pattern that repeats over and over again. What we're seeing here is actually something unique. This is a one-time thing. Israel is only to act in this way in very rare and very extreme cases. We don't, the entire history is not them wiping out people to the man. They're, they're only to do that when God explicitly tells them to. Never any other time. It's not just their general pattern of life. And that's why we can't take any justification for this and just kind of lift it out of here and say, well, it's, it's like today in, you know, fighting in, in certain parts of the world. You know, it's not, this, it's not the same. It's not like we can wage holy war just like the Israelites did against evil people today because it's just not the same. This is a unique time and a unique situation. But also God tells us that's not how it works anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. And finally, we're also told that God doesn't exercise judgment in this way, in this day, because he tells us, actually today, judgment is delayed. This kind of judgment, which all sin does deserve, is delayed. Because today is a time of mercy. Today he is waiting, forbearing, that people would hear of Jesus, that people would hear of good news. And so that this doesn't happen yet. 
So what we have here is God's right command given to his crooked people to achieve his will in a particular way. But, just like a cake baked earlier today, it doesn't go very well, does it? And once we get to kind of verse 19 onwards, the kind of positive things that we've seen slowly get worse and worse, don't they? I won't read all of those verses to you, but we can scan over them together. Just There's, there's certainly some positive things. If you rewind back to, to verse 12, we see this great moment with, with uh, Aksa, uh, Caleb's daughter. Um, it seems strange to us. Our culture is very different. We don't like the idea of being promised in marriage. But really what's been established for, for Caleb's daughter here is marriage to a really great, godly, trusting guy. And that's what we see. And in the account of her gaining springs for their land, we see this wonderful picture of, of men and women, godly men and women, uh, dynamically and creatively living out their roles, very respectfully and positively. And it's this wonderful little snapshot of what, of what might have been, how God's people could have lived in the land. We see similar with the Kenites, Moses' uh, father-in-law and his family. They come into the land and they do well. They settle, they live amongst God's people and are blessed by that. They take possession of it and they do right. But the rest gets pretty negative, doesn't it? Yes, Judah can beat some armies, but they can't defeat chariots. Benjamin have uh, attacked Jerusalem, but they can't even overcome this previously beaten city. And it gets worse. We see Joseph... Uh, the tribes of Joseph uh, against Bethel. It sounds very similar. They find a spy to, to kind of suss out the city for them. It, it, if you're familiar with the story of Rahab from the book of Joshua, it sounds like that, doesn't it? But there's some really key differences. Whereas Rahab offered help, whereas she confessed God and became part of the people, this is very different. This spy was taken. He was promised to. And he doesn't join God's people. He actually goes off and establishes a rival city to God's people. And it keeps getting worse. We read that the tribes did not drive out the Canaanites. Then we read that the tribes can't drive out the Canaanites. We read that the Canaanites lived among God's people. Then we read that God's people lived among the Canaanites. We read that the Canaanites resist but are subjugated. Then we read that the Israelites are forced back and the Danites are even pushed back and confined. This conquest is going terribly, isn't it? It's a disaster. The the command is very clear. Get rid of them, clean the land, make it yours and make it yours alone. But increasingly, they're failing. Reality is falling far short. So why is it an issue? Well, imagine this. Imagine you have a surgeon operating on you uh, to remove cancer from you. Uh, What are you going to tell the surgeon on the way into into surgery, into theatre? Uh, you're going to say, get it all. <laughs> don't miss a bit. You know, take your time, do the right job, get every bit of it out. You don't want anything left behind. So how are you going to feel during surgery uh, if, if, if your surgeon you know, just leave that bit. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's not an important part of your body. It's not going to affect you. You're still going to live a long time. You know, it's almost morning tea time. This is a bit tricky. It's going to take a while. It just... Sew it up, just leave it. Uh, You're not going to be impressed, are you? It's a disaster. And so it is for Israel. 
God has commanded this for a reason. He has said, get all the corrupting influence out. Get rid of the poison. Cut it away. Get a clean start, a new start. And Israel said, it's too hard. I can't be bothered. I'm happy as it is. They've made terrible decisions. No no doubt they've rationalised their decisions. No doubt they've thought them through and agreed upon them together. And yet, what's the conclusion? It's disobedience. Yes, humanly, it's very understandable, isn't it? I mean, Israel were the minority here. They were clearly the smaller group entering this land. They had to attack and defeat king after king and armies after armies and all these huge fortified cities. Uh, their enemies had chariots, which is like the, you know, the army tank of the day. It was impossible, humanly speaking. It was scary, overwhelming to look at the task ahead of them. But spiritually, there's no question, is there? I mean, they'd defeated chariot armies in the past. God had seen that happen. They'd overcome dozens of kings, giants even. They've seen whole heavily fortified cities just crumble into dust as they literally just walked around them. There's no question of what God's done in the past. But the problem here is the fear of hardship, the fear of cost is greater than their fear of God and greater than their trust in his power. And so they've disobeyed. Now we might say, how stupid. Didn't they just read Joshua? Like it's only two pages back in the Bible. How could they forget? But before we point the finger too quickly, we need to look at our own lives, don't we? Who would be so bold as to say they've never done the same? Who of us has never withheld the truth? Even though it's important, simply because, you know, it's going to be hard if you say it. There's going to be a cost if you speak up. Who's never shied back from doing something different or doing the right thing? Because the consequences are costly. Who's ever said, I can't forgive him? Or I can't resist that temptation, it's just my weakness. Yes, we rationalise it beautifully, don't we? we? We reason it out in our minds. We come up with all these good and very reasonable excuses. And yet it's no different, is it? It's still disobedience. Because what we're being told here, what this chapter is saying to us is, it's never a question of can't. You are never put in a situation where can't is true. It is a matter of won't. We can never say, I can't do that, because remember what God promises to us. It's, it's equally as good as what God promises to the Israelites. God promises to us, never will I leave you. I'll always be with you. God promises to us, my power is made perfect in weakness. All of that is ours. And so it's not a matter of can't in our lives, it's a matter of won't. And ultimately then, it's a matter of disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. God says obey even when it's hard, even when it costs. Exclusively and wholeheartedly live for me. We've had our history lesson. Now it's time 
to consider the consequences. And we see that when God comes to speak to his people in chapter 2. Let me just remind you of those verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. They offered sacrifices to the Lord. It's very laden with uh, imagery and symbolism, these verses. Uh, We see that God's messenger, this this angel of the Lord, comes from Gilgal. Gilgal is a place where uh, there was great promises and great commitments from God and from his people to one another just before they entered the land. But now he's left there and he's come to this place, Bochim. And if you notice in your uh, footnotes, Bochim means weeping. It's a place of sadness. And he comes to speak. And he comes specifically to remind them what God has said to them in the past. There's two things God said to them. First of all, God said, we see it there at the end of verse 1, God said, I am making a covenant to you, I am giving you this land, but more importantly I'm covenanting myself to you and I will never break that covenant. So because of that, don't covenant with anyone else, uh, destroy all rivals to my worship and glory. He's saying, it's exclusive, this relationship. You know, it's, it's like marriage. You can't have one marriage and then just add another. The, the second will destroy the first. It's exclusive, this relationship. But Israel has been unfaithful. We, we read they made a covenant with this man at Bethel. Clearly they've made other covenants and agreements with the Canaanites that they now live amongst and in the midst of. They've disobeyed. They've been unfaithful. And so God reminds them of the second thing that he said to them. It's there in verse 3. The, the NIV says, Now I tell you, that, that's how it translates, but literally it's, But I also said to you, But I also said to you, If you do this, if you disobey, if you're unfaithful, I won't drive, drive out those people. There'll be thorns. There'll be snares to you. Your choices to this point will have consequences and those consequences will be hard. Now clearly Israel realises this. We see their remorse, we see their, their weeping and their sadness. You know, it's, it's, it's that moment where they realise all of this was on offer and they've made choices and missed out. They've taken the easy path and the consequences are disastrous. God's no longer going to help them against their enemies. He's not going to drive them out for them. Instead, their life from this point on is going to be a life of struggle, a life of temptation and distraction and and conflict with themselves but also with those around them. God is saying to them, from this point on, your life is under this great tension, the tension of the two things that God has said to them. On the one hand, his promise, I will give you this land, I will be your people, I will be with you, and I'll punish you if you disobey. These things pulling against each other. How is this going to be resolved? What's this going to mean? What's it going to look for God's people going on from here? I mean, the people seem to re- respond well, but we're, we're left with this question, where's their remorse going to leave them? 
What's it going to come to? Are we going to see a new chapter of faithfulness to God? Or is it empty words? But more importantly, what's God going to do here? How is God going to resolve this tension? What's he going to, how's he going to bring this together? And we get no answer. The, chapter, the, the passage ends. That's all God says. That's his last word here. And instead what we see is the rest of the book plays out. And we get our answer in the record of things to come. And it's ongoing tension. The people disobey. God punishes. God shows mercy. The people disobey. God punishes. God shows mercy. Again and again this cycle repeats. And the question is put before us, what hope is there? What hope is there? Can his people ever be unwavering, uncompromising, faithful enough to lay hold of these promises that God is putting on the table before them? Can they ever take hold of them? Clearly Israel are not. God has laid it all out on a platter. Here's the land, I will go with you, I will make way for you. Just take hold of it. And they failed. And the question the reader, the question we are asked to reflect on is are we any different? When God puts his promises before us, when he lays them out and offers them to us, are we unwavering? Are we uncompromising? Are we faithful enough to take them up? And the Bible's answer is no. Never. Because the pattern of this book, the pattern of this passage, is the pattern of our lives as well. We are not even faithful enough to pick up what God lays before us. So what hope is there? How, how does this tension between the promise of blessing and the promise of punishment, how is that resolved? How are those things brought together? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But God can do it. This is how he does it. This is Romans chapter 3, speaking about what he's done in Jesus. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you, do you hear what that verse is announcing to us? Saying God is just. He punishes wrongdoing as it deserves. He brings it to his, its right consequence. But God is also the one who justifies. That is the one who makes right wrong people. How does he do those things? Well, he brings it together in Jesus. In Jesus, he punishes your sin justly as it deserves. And in Jesus, he justly makes you right, justifies you and gives his blessing and loving kindness to you. Here's how Paul can speak of it in, in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus has taken hold of those promises of God. 
All those promised blessings that he is offering, even to us, Jesus has taken hold of them for us. We were too faithless to pick them up and so he has done it. And he has taken hold of us so that we can receive them, so that they can be ours. Jesus, Jesus is our tall friend. You know, you like a tall friend because they can get the thing off the high shelf for you. Jesus is that for us. God's promise was, was too hard for us to pick up. We couldn't reach it. We couldn't take it. But he could. And he did. And though it cost him his life, he took hold of it in order to give it to us. And it is ours by trusting. And that's why where, where Israel wept, where Israel despaired at the end of this chapter, we don't have to. We can have a confidence and a gladness that they don't have because God has resolved this tension for us and he's done it in Jesus and offered it freely, not conditional on us, but depending on him. I don't think we realise this. I don't think we're good at this. Because so sadly it seems to me that if we act as if we're holding on to God's promises, yes, but holding on by the very skin of our teeth. And if we slip in any way whatsoever, we're going to lose our hold on them forever and be lost. And it means when we come to God, we're terrified of him. We see him as this awful grump, this miserly old man just waiting for our faults. And so he can take back what he regrets promising us in the first place. But what we're being told here is that nothing is further from the truth. That's not God at all. God's promises are not held in your grasping fingertips. They are secured, secured for you forever in Jesus' firm grasp. They're not conditional, not conditional on what you've done in the past or what you're doing at the moment or even on anything you do in the future. They have been achieved once and for all. If you simply believe in him, there is nothing in this world that is more sure than his promises in Jesus. It is more likely that the sun will not come up tomorrow than his promises be lost. It is more likely you wake up tomorrow with bright blue skin than lose his promises. There is nothing more sure than them. And so rather than hopeless and empty despair, we can keep going with him gladly and boldly. This is how Paul continues in Philippians 3. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We can press on, not empty despair, not waiting, not not fearing, but glad because we know the promise is sure. And so we can be more trusting to obey even when it's hard. We can be more eager to be faithful even when it costs. We can be more resistant to that temptation because what we have is better. Because we are freed in him, not fearing but glad. Not in order to secure what he offers, but because what he offers is secure. We don't have to say, I can't, when it's hard or when we're scared of the cost, but I will. Even though it is hard, even though there is a cost, knowing that God is graciously with us, he's forgiven our failings and he's promised our future. 
because our God is both promiser and promise secure. He is the one who both offers and obtains for us. Through and despite and covering all our failings with his immense grace, his perfect mercy and his unmatched love given to us in Jesus. All his promises are yours even today if you trust in him for he has taken hold of them. He has done what you couldn't and he has given it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you for what this passage shows to us because even though it paints a very dark picture of our failing and shortcoming and unfaithfulness and disobedience, it also offers to us a beautiful picture of your unfailing love, your justice and your mercy come together. Father, we thank you for Jesus who acted on our behalf, who rescued us and took our punishment, who secured your promises to us forever. Father, help us live in light of those promises and the security that we have. Help us to be confident and bold and glad in him, freed from fear, freed to live trustingly and faithfully for you. In his name we pray. Amen.